Myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 275. You are joined by an exciting, visionary new voice in cinema who made history as the youngest director and the first African-American director to win the Founders Award at Tribeca at the age of 19 for his critically acclaimed debut feature, Burning Cane. Immerse yourself in the work of Philip Humans. Hear all about his unique and powerful approach through the process of making his new short, Voodoo, available now as part of Hulu's Huluween Hub in conjunction with their Initiative 29. We talk about the magic of film itself, in his case, the tangible grit of Super 16, striking wonderful polarity in music, artfully weaving in metaphor, and the unforgettable images and free association that are a part of horror's lifeblood. A conversation with Philip Humans on episode 275. It starts now. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy studio is a gifted and visionary filmmaker who made history when he became the youngest director and the first African-American director to win the Founders Award for Best Narrative Feature at the Tribeca Film Festival at the age of 19 for his highly acclaimed debut that he created while still in high school, Burning Kane, now available on Netflix, which was also celebrated for its fluid cinematography and performances. He's been profiled in Forbes, Dazed, and more. His work is musical, poetic, deeply meaningful, and powerful. A time of release today, October 29th, is part of Hulu's annual Huluween Hub event featuring classic film premieres and shorts and in conjunction with their Initiative 29, serving as a year-round platform to celebrate diverse storytelling. His original horror short, Voodoo, is available. Here to tell us all about it, we are honored to be joined by its creator, Philip Humans. Yeah, man. Thank you guys for having me, man. I'm excited to talk about this project, man. No problem. And congrats on its release. We absolutely love it. So just first of all, we just wanted to dive into your early experiences with the horror genre as a viewer and how those moments affected you. Got it. So in truth, it's like, it's interesting when I look at horror and I consider that with, with voodoo, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I almost felt like with this piece, I was more so going after the feeling, right? Going after the mood of, you know, the investment that comes from being into a character and wanting to know what their fate is going to be. That to me, almost out of the suspense and the horror, the element, you know, the idea of what could happen to Chance after that last frame. You know, that for me was so much more the horror than I could even show on camera and there was a brilliant movie that like really i think changed the perspective of how i looked at you know and i think it's important to look at voodoo in you know a slightly different context as well also as like a neo-noir sort of mystery you know it's something where the horror elements when they come in they come in at the end you know and they come in as an example for what the piece is really about and the piece voodoo is a metaphor for cultural appropriation and weaponization. So voodoo, when we see it used by the Black people in the story, you know, Alex, Chance, it leads them 
on the path of solving the investigation, but is also being perpetrated by, you know, an evil perpetrator, you know what I mean? And the position, that conversation is what this piece is about, you know, and I wanted to bring voodoo, something that people have always associated so much with, you know, sinister qualities, you know, stuff that's like super, super, you know, macabre to take out of that opening monologue, you know, like that's our association with voodoo, but I wanted to bring that into the 21st century and also sort of reclaim that for black people in New Orleans. And so I thought that now I'm not a voodoo practitioner myself, but my uh, good friend and the lead of my last film, Burning Cane, uh, her name is Karen Kaya Livers. She served as really kind of a spiritual advisor for me on this project because she is like the voodoo, you know, queen of New Orleans, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? She is just so in the know about everything of that culture in the city, you know, and that's where I'm from, New Orleans, born and raised. And so talking to Kaia, talking about how voodoo was about balance, how voodoo was about this sort of yin and yang effect of, of, of good and evil, you know, that idea to me was very beautiful also to think about, you know, instead of, you know, voodoo being something where, you know, it's, it's, Chance trying to evade bits of this dark energy coming around when he comes in contact with Sterling Ellis and he lets Sterling know that his intentions are good. That soothes Sterling's soul. And with that, sunshine shines in the frame. The objects start levitating. It's like it manifests voodoo in a really beautiful way, in a way that I hadn't seen before. And that's what I wanted to do with this. And then the horror, which is what the question was, and the horror really comes in at the end to reinforce that juxtaposition. I wanted to ask about that stunning scene also when, when they summon Sterling, that if the film had one impactful image that could represent the story, I really think that would be it. Everything in the room, as you said, is floating. The plants are growing. What, what was the magic behind actually creating that physically? Mm, well, it's really interesting. You know, I, when, before we shot that, I was, this is my first time working with any real, you know, intensive special effects, you know, and so, um, and our VFX artist, an amazing dude named Max Colt, he uh, flew into LA. Uh, he's from Europe, I believe. Yeah, he's from Europe. And he flew into LA and he was there supervising the day of, and I thought, you know, we brought sort of, we brought like a, a green screen and I think we brought enough green screen that we could sort of like put it on the chairs or whatever that may be, but we didn't even need that, which was super wild and crazy to me that all we needed to do was make one shot of the sort of a composite shot where nothing's in the frame, literally not the table, not the chairs. And then the other shot was literally the actors in the frame, everything else in the frame and them performing, doing the scene as if they were floating. And Max and his team were able to make something really, really beautiful and surreal about that moment and really encapsulated that pacing of that moment really well, too. So it was insane. It was insane how I was just, I, I just, it's just insane how it, it's insane how much it didn't change much about the shot selection at all, you know, like in a great way, like in a way that we didn't have to account for like ropes. We didn't have to account for anything like that. You know, it really freed up. And I wanted to get that moment rising on that wide anyway. You know, I felt like we would see that growth in that scale. Right. And then when the, and then when the plants on the side start like floating and like, 
Dude, that, that, that to me is so, yeah, they did an amazing job. Yeah, honestly, Not- I haven't seen anything quite, quite like that scene, man. As far as the director goes, like a, what a signature piece and moment to have in there. And it was just uh, really, really breathtaking. Ending it on that note of horror. What do you think is powerful about seeing the story through that lens for a moment, through the lens of horror? What, what do you think that the lens of horror does to the imagination of a viewer? Well, the lens of horror to me really creates images and allows for free association in a way that I think few other genres can compare to. And I feel like an example of this, I think could be like with Blair Witch, right? Like with Blair Witch, there's so much tension and so much fear that comes from just the idea of this thing and feeling, you know, the fear of the individuals that we're following in the film, even more so than any of the, than the filmmakers could have ever shown us, you know, like that idea allowing that space for free association to me is so powerful. And an example that I say, when I think about like allowing the audience to have the idea to come to the association and how that can be really powerful is actually not from a a horror film per se, but from a film that's in the thriller neo-noir genre. And that's seven, the masterpiece. An amazing thing about seven, which I always thought was just like, just killer uh, was that there's one, one of the sins lust, we just see this like super fucked up object, like in this Polaroid, this picture of it. And that's the only crime scene that we don't see. But from seeing that picture alone, you know what the fuck that shit looked like. And it's nothing pretty. You know what I'm saying? Like that to me is so powerful. Like that, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very, very, it almost gives the audience an opportunity to be a part of the world building in a way that I think is really interesting. And when it comes to horror, I think that only really kind of furthers the immersion, you know, like we see at the beginning of this film that the coroner describes what happens to chance as a nightmare. The detective, this Lord investigation became a nightmare. And we just see the beginning of that. Now, the rest of that, our mind is left to wander and think, what else did this nightmare hold for chance? You know, what else lay before him? What happens to chance? You know, that to me is very, very important. Allowing that space for free association is something that's important to me as a filmmaker. And I also think a, a hallmark of a lot of great art, not all great art, for sure, but a lot of great art. Yeah, definitely the art that sticks with you, I find, you know, the writing of that opening monologue. When did that come in, in context of creating this piece? Was it your gateway in? It was the first thing. It was the first. I wrote the monologue and uh, yeah, it was the first thing that I wrote of it. And I was like, I loved how surgical it sounded, you know, and it, it was felt like, I love the intros of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like that to me is like one of the dopest intros in cinema. Like the, the text of that, like, I feel like if there's something so dope also about that, like text scrawl in Texas Chainsaw that I thought was fire. And there's something so surgical in the same way that you feel in like the twilight zone you see and like the way that these uh these sort of announcers so to speak in the case the coroner who's our our, our narrator and looking back she's like omniscient you know and i think beverly did an amazing job i think she killed that monologue so great man she's so right great. Yeah, right yeah yeah but yeah that was the first that to me set the tone but i felt like it needed 
because it's a short, you know, because it's 26 minutes and 30 seconds, roughly like there was, there was a lot that I wanted to get in there, but it was also kind of a balance of giving people just the right amount of context in the beginning to like give them a hook and also to give us a feeling of, there's like something really dope and I don't know, like there's something super cool to me about breaking the fourth wall and having those intros in the beginning. Like, I feel like it's just such a classic element of horror. Like it's such a classic element of the Twilight Zone, such a classic element of the genre at certain points, you know? And I feel like that to me was, was definitely the way to do it. And also it gives us the sort of um, the lane to bring in some needed context, right? Like to just drop into that, you could just drop into it. But I felt like in order for us to feel like this is a moment in time and a wider timeline, we need some context as to what that wider timeline is. And so I felt like I could intro it really dope and then also have this sort of foretelling of the nightmare that awaits. So it's almost like you're planting the seed for something, slowly building up, wondering where this nightmare begins. And once you get to the nightmare, you don't see it in its entirety and then you're allowed to sort of conjure up what happens next. The city of New Orleans, right? In the not so distant future, we're looking at 2027. It's uh, an imp- incredibly poignant character in this piece. And you, you pair that polarity of being just slightly in the future, but you've got these historic cemeteries, these columned houses and the magic of voodoo. It really all disarms the viewer. At least it disarmed me in crafting a vibe that is very uncomfortable. It really gives you the keys to our imagination right there. What are some of the things behind those decisions? In terms of setting the piece in 2027, I knew that I almost wanted to have something that felt honestly like almost like a black blade runner. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain vibe to taking something that's so quintessentially New Orleans and bringing that into the 21st century, right? In every way, shape, and form. And I feel like that the representation of that also, to me, is manifested in a couple of different ways. Like, I feel like New Orleans also is always seen as such a black and white city when, you know, it is a diverse melting pot, you know, and there are people of every, from all across the world who have found a home in New Orleans. And I wanted the people that you see, the world that you see to be indicative of that. And so that played a part in our casting choices as well. And also with New Orleans, you know, that Rico, Rashad Rico Brown, who plays Chance and Faith Bowie, I went to high school with both of them. And I was I actually had a physics class with, uh, with Faith when I'm my freshman year. And then Rico, we went to NOCA and he was in, what was he in set design. So he was like building sets for theater productions there while I was in media arts and film. Uh, and they were homies. And then, in this case, I felt like what would give the piece the most, you know, authentic kind of brush in and the most refreshing take on the city and on these characters, you know, and on this mood was to have young people and people that are also from the city and can just be New Orleans without trying. And that to me, I think is something that is manifested, but also the only person that isn't from New Orleans and it's fitting is Ethan. And Ethan plays Wyatt Liver. And I think Ethan did an amazing job, you know, in still in in creating that atmosphere and also bringing this, Ethan is young and Ethan is 
after I saw Ethan's tape, it shifted my idea of who Lee Vera was. I imagined Lee Vera as something more initially as like an older guy, you know, someone who's, you know, generational, generational wealth based on black suffering, you know, the kind of person who went from plantation to private prison. And that's still the case for Lee Vera. But casting younger, not only was Ethan just the best person at audition, like he's amazing, but not only was that the case, Having him be younger, I also thought brought that into a more contemporary conversation and made it feel like this idea, this almost archetype of this Southern good old boy still lives on today, albeit in a much more polished maybe form. That to me, I almost felt like also adds to the element of horror, the world building, right? And then the opportunity at the end to create your own associations with it. How would you describe the relationship between the detective and the coroner? Well, the detective and the coroner, it's almost, it's like Alex has a very maternal sort of protectiveness of chance, but they're friends and they speak very real to each other. Alex is particularly connected to the spiritual world, you know, because she's a coroner, she also has a very, very in touch sort of space with the spirit world. And you see that in her, it's interesting how like, her house that we see them levitate in, it's super light filled, super like, again, trying to flip these associations of the coroner, flip these associations on their head and modernize them and bring them into this century. And I feel like that is also a way that I hadn't seen a character like a coroner be portrayed as this super light filled, albeit she's a real one. Like she'll tell you for real how it is, but has such a symbiotic relationship with the other side that she views her work with such great care and she views chance and everyone else around her alive or dead with that same great care and she and chance are close they see each other all the time he's this young homicide detective and like fresh homicide detective and she's the seasoned coroner of the city of new orleans and because she can tell that chance is a good person that chance means right by it is trying to do his job trying to find whoever did this, she's always, besides her liking chance as a person, also still trying to help him on his work, with his work. But this case, voodoo, is the first time where something very, very different has happened for them. And it's something where the reason I wanted to drop it in now is that all the other killings, all the seven other self-mutilations had happened in private residences, in a warehouse. But this eighth one happens in a graveyard which is particularly sacrilegious, you know, and that for someone very, very in touch with the spirit world is going to make the coroner queasy like she was in the beginning of the story. And it's that first, that first instance where Alex has seen more bodies than anyone, you know, probably should ever see. Right. But this whole mood, this feeling is sinister. Death doesn't scare Alex. Death the other side doesn't scare Alex. Spirits, ghosts, all those sorts of things don't scare her. But pure evil, maliciousness, right? A vile, disrespectful, sacrilegious nature is something that does unsettle her. And she instills that information in chance. And that's what we set off on. The Boo Crew will be right back. Hello? Anybody home? Sally, I hear something. Stop. Oh, please. Please, please help. 
The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from New Line Cinema. Rated R. No one under 17 admitted without parent or guardian. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. wanted to get into the voice of the camera for voodoo the visuals have a lot of texture they have warmth and one of my favorites is after liver throws the glass down and we get those amazing like lens flares and a lot of film noise and stuff it's wonderful how do you achieve that and why is that important for you so we shot on uh well first off thank you i'm i'm, I'm stoked that uh I'm stoked at how it turned out, you know, overall. And I think, uh, it, I think it's beautiful and I'm super proud of that, you know, and, and part of that is from shooting on super 16, super 16 to me is just an amazing format. You know, it's a format that was, you know, initially reserved for shooting on docks, you know, before the advent of digital cinema. And so we have this association with 16 and truth. Right. And so I feel like for the most part, that's what I try to shoot with. And also because of the texture of 16 is absolutely gorgeous. If you have a, a calculated composition, if you shoot that on 16, that calculated composition just became absolutely insane. I feel like it, it just is an automatic, you know, it ups the ante and it's just such a beautiful format. And the relationship that I think, you know, the media has with the, the medium has with film is, is one other thing, but I feel like in truth, the reason that I wanted to do it with this project and the reason why I've been shooting on 16 really ever since Burning Kane is because of how just, you just, it's, it's irreplaceable. You know, there's, you can match 16, you can match a shot here or there, you know, but the real lived in world, the texture that you feel, it's like, it's, I don't know. It also, it brings me so much comfort as a filmmaker to know that my compositions are getting shot on film also, you know, because it feels like, I don't know. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, I just, I think it's, it's, it's the format to go with and, and voodoo it was the format for sure. And there's a great texture to that. And, you know, film deals with light differently at different times of the day. You know, when there's more light readily available, your image is probably going to be sharper because you don't have to open it up as much, you know, when you have to be wide open and that's, and we, got, we run with that, right. You don't run away from that, you know, and I, and I almost feel like that grain, that texture feels more horror and textural and elements than, you know, anything. It's like that texture, that grain to me is I think about that when I think of Texas chainsaw, right. I think about that texture, that, that grit, that malleable sort of, you know, it's like very, very, so it feels like you can touch it. What's the word? I'm yeah. Like tangible? Uh, tangible. Yeah. 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 It really does. I'm curious. What are the challenges of shooting with a format like that? Well, I mean, the challenges come in, in the number of takes that you have, which is one thing, but that's not always a challenge per se, because sometimes that can force you to be just more precise and take an extra second longer to think about but you know it's still worth it to say that there are times when you want to get something else you have an idea for something else and you have to think about okay how much film stock do we have left how much left do we have to shoot can how much more stock can we get but my feeling with that is always like shoot 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 what you can you know 
I don't, I always want to be able to leave set feeling like I got what I, the vision that I uh, set out for, you know? And I feel like 16, for everything that 16 does, the only challenge sometimes can be with just not, not having the sort of infinite number, right? But that's not even a challenge per se. It's like, it comes with the, it comes with the medium, it comes with the territory. And I feel like I embrace that. It's all very much worth it to shoot on 16. You know? I think the only other thing that I could also say is like, uh, is a challenge, but it's not even a, an, a super intensive challenge sometimes is just in wanting to like hop into something ASAP. Like you have to wait a couple days for 16. And for someone who's so anxious about seeing everything day of, anxious to hop in the edit and start editing, like that's a challenge in patience for me sometimes. But again, it's not nothing enough to make me not want to shoot 16. So I suppose it's almost more meaningful that way, right? Low key, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's sacred that way. The interior design on, on some of the sets, in particular, Mr. Mr. Lever's house is lives mm-hmm. in this incredible place. It feels like a museum. Yeah. Where did you find it? How much of that is set deck? How much of that was there before? So the house, the interior, the exterior was shot in New Orleans, but the interior was shot in L.A., and the house in LA, it's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's built, you know, like a hundred years ago or something. And we came in and had these amazing green walls and it had this amazing, you know, sense of space and lived in feeling. And it had that feeling again, like a museum. And my whole idea with the Lee Bear house was that we were going to see his obsession and fixation on black people and obsession with black culture through the fact that we see this white man with a bunch of African artwork, right? Like everywhere, like in every little corner, anywhere there could be a painting hung up or it could be a piece of artwork. There is something there and it more than likely is black. And there's that association, you know, like that understanding with the detective where he gets up to say any inmates, uh, any former employees, and he's looking around, and he walked into that place earlier, but now he's really looking, even without saying anything. There's nothing that says, there's nothing that tells us, like, oh, that's fucked up, or like, oh, why do you have these? It's just the fact that we're chances fixated on them. We know whose house this is. He tilts his head, and then the moment that chance tilts his head to take a closer look, Wyatt notices that he's taking a little bit too long and he says, yo, it's time to go. And that is, that to me was a part of us understanding that, all right, well, this Lee Ver guy definitely probably has something to do with it. And there's also, it creates this conversation. Lee Ver is a, even more than the individual is a representation of this idea of cultural appropriation, right? And of weaponizing and exploitation. And Lever Corrections is his manifestation of that. It's a private prison. And Wyatt Lever, you know, just like a lot of hunters sometimes, people who just go out and kill or just outright awful people, they'll sometimes keep, you know, little reminders or tokens or things. And in Wyatt's case, it's just an, a fixation and an exploitation with all things black. The 
choice that you make with score plays with polarity a ton. And this is not music one would typically associate with something pertaining to the supernatural, these sweeping strings, the, that open and close of the film, the fretless bass reversing music. It makes the journey even that much more unsettling. What did you want the music to elevate? Yo, so shout out to my composer, Chris Runners, and my co-composer and engineer, Edwin Gonzalez. It's two incredibly talented young musicians. When I spoke to them about it, it was important for me to, for this soundtrack to feel soulful, but also feel just as electronic and kind of processed and produced and somehow kind of tote that line of feeling all of the sort of the energy of an acoustic soul, but infusing that into something electronic and synth based and all of this kind of thing. Like I wanted it to feel in a way reflective of like, uh, I think one of the great scores, particularly of that detective genres, Blade Runner, right? Like it's just, it's just, it's so otherworldly and ethereal and you automatically feel like you're about to witness like the next, the next alien, like, <laughs> like it's like, so it's like, it puts you in a different mood and that feeling, but something even more soulful, you know, even more reflective of new Orleans. Like there's something very cold and dope about that blade runner thing, but it's a very, very, the guy who's hunting, you know, like he's, but with voodoo, I wanted it to be about soothing the soul, but also feel the futurism, the contemporary nature of the story. And Chris and uh, Edwin, they, they were, I mean, they're amazing. The trailer, they're about to drop. I just sent the file for that, for the trailer to Hulu yesterday. Uh, they're just laying graphics over it. But as soon as they drop that, you know, Chris made a special uh, score for the trailer. Oh, cool. It's like kind of a bit of a song that you hear when they're kissing, but it's like, it's, I don't know. It's gorgeous. I think he did an amazing job. Again, that to me is like those strings, that swelling energy to me is like, bro, this is fucking cinema, bro. Like, and that feeling, I always felt like if when I'm, when I'm over here editing the trailer and then Chris sends me this track, these strings and these rising these rising strings. And then there's like this, I did a horrible impression, but like, it just, it gives me chills, you know? And with every piece that I make, I, I feel like for the most part, if something gives me chills or makes me feel very intensely looking at my own screen, after seeing it a bunch, a bunch of times, after feeling that, experiencing that moment a bunch of times, then I can bet that someone else will feel something too. Then a good, pretty much a good guide. And just Chris is, Chris worked hard as hell. Edwin did too. I mean, we had a number of all nighters, especially towards the end of, uh, towards the end of this month, you know, just getting everything finalized and getting it set. And I just, yeah, they were amazing. I'm, I'm incredibly happy with the sound of this thing. I think it's, I think that score that he made is, is, is gorgeous. I would love to listen to it like on, on like a, like you know what i'm saying like a little soundtrack thing hell yeah no it's iconic how did you land on that beautiful title card that you gave us with that so i actually am starting this uh magazine called voodoo magazine 
I made that logo about like a year ago. You know, I just bought the address foodmagazine.com and that was the logo that I made for the magazine. And I felt like really the same sentiments, principles, it's like New Orleans in the, and bringing it into this century, that whole spirit, there's a spiritual continuum between, you know, the artistic endeavor of that magazine and of this film. And I just felt like the word looks so dope there. Like I, I even made like hoodies, bro. I went, but yeah, I think that bringing that back, it just felt like straight up. Like I almost want that look of Hulu to be associated. I mean, Hulu voodoo to be associated with this film, but also it's the logo that I made for that magazine that I'm going to launch. So there's going to be a connection. What would you say? that you discovered about yourself while making voodoo? Ooh, I think something that's big with every project that I make, I learn more and more about the sort of, I don't know, I guess, I guess almost the kind of rhythm that I work in, you know, and finding what at the end of the day is going to allow me to, sleep at night thinking that I gave this piece and this piece is everything that I wanted it to be. And I feel like with this project, I have been more, I guess, steadfast in my vision, you know, I, but it also, there's a certain sense of accommodating that you have to, you have to do whenever budgets might be tighter or time frame might be shorter. You know, there's, there's, a certain sense of malleability in this case, that's used correctly, malleability that is needed in that space, you know, and with any production and any project. But on this project, I felt like, and it came during post-production also, I've had moments in past projects where I've like thought about, oh, you know, it'd be cool to get that. But I thought like, oh, well, it would be so annoying if I did this and hit them up about da 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 at this point. But then I would even years later just be like fuck like if i had just said something that i wouldn't think about this anymore then it would be in the project and all that and it came down to the wire on this one we're making sound mix notes up until the end literally yesterday and that to me is okay because at the end of the day i know in the long term and for everyone viewing the film that it's a better piece it fits more closely with my vision, you know, and also I can sleep at night knowing that there wasn't any stone left unturned that I at least saw through every possible form and option and note to try to make this thing as good as I can make it. And I think that was a big lesson this time, just making sure that I remain, of course, be accommodating kind, respectful, malleable, everything that is essential to making a good piece, but also retaining a sort of steadfast nature and knowing, especially because I'm also editing it, what I'm going to need, you know, in the edit, what I'm going to need to make this film the best it's going to be, you know, and I called Rico a few days into the edit, like, yo, can you record, can you go outside, record on voice memos, like you saying, and Mr. Rivera, because I realized we shot that scene without him saying Lee Bear. And before I knew that 
on a first look, on a first watch, it's important. I don't want to spoon feed anyone anything, but I had to ask myself, is it important for people to know? And it is in order to follow the story. And so I said, yo, Rico, look, I know it's late in the game. I can't really do this officially. Like, could you just do this for me? He was like, straight up, did it, sent me it five, 10 minutes later, came in the film. And then from that point on, we, in that point in the film, we now know chances there. We now, it's like those little things that we would have come to, like he would have come inside and seen Wyatt upstairs and we would have been introduced as Lee Bear. But it was important to me that people knew that beforehand, going into it, having the proper context and understanding that this is Lee Bear's house. And so all of that, I think, is just, that's, that's how much, that's, I guess, the, the best example of my growth is just re- retaining all the good parts and, you know, the, like, I'm the, the chillest, most, I don't know, like, I have a, just such a good time on set and making sure that my set is a good vibe is paramount. It's like the most important thing to me that people feel safe, respected, heard, like they could, they feel like they could chill and hang with anybody. And that's very, very important to me and all that's retained. But I feel like that can all, that cool vibe can be retained and also stay steadfast and accountable to yourself and your vision. That all can still happen in the same project. And I feel like I saw that and learned that in earnest with this piece. Your vision and your unique take on the horror elements in this piece are astounding. If you could be given any horror franchise that exists right now to have the opportunity to play with, what, what would you pick? Ooh. Yo, I, I low key. It's, it's, it definitely would be, definitely be, I think a TV show now. Yeah. Okay. And I almost feel like, shit. I'm between, now I know Jordan Peele already redid The Twilight Zone. I mean, I love Aliens. That'd be unique as shit. That'd be amazing. I'm trying to think about like, I don't know. I don't know. That's a tough question. I mean, I'm obsessed with The Twilight Zone, so that's an easy one. I mean, I loved American Horror Story. You know, American Horror Story is dope. So you like that opportunity to be able to tell a wide variety of different styles of stories well yeah i just like the because i feel like there's something interesting about like i I don't know like i'm i'm very especially especially with this idea with voodoo the short like i feel like this story could go on it's it's something that even before hulu reached out about this like it was an idea and it's crazy it was an idea that i was developing as this feature as this like feature about this story where the detective is guided by voodoo, you know, and that's how it was sort of condensed into where we see it now with voodoo in the short. But like, there's something so cool to me about one, like, I guess, non-serialized shows where it's like, I think I'm saying that right. Serialized is when each episode is following a a certain story. Yeah. Non-serialized is when they're each standalone pieces. Like having a, a serialized miniseries or like ser- something tight and confirmed. Like I look film filmmaking, you know, within the the medium, you know, whether it's features, shorts, t- 
TV shows. Like it's all one unifying medium and features and film, I guess on that side of it is my bread and butter, but there's something so fascinating to me about, you know, even with horror, the potential for world building and character building that you get with television. The fact that like, for example, with a, a breaking bad, right. You're given the potential to see Walter white each and every episode and understand why he gets to the end point that he did, you know, with this short, I wanted to give us only almost like a, a scrapbook, kind of a, a mosaic of some of these moments, these, in and out sort of vignette moments that chance has leading up to this encounter with Lee Bear. But I think if there was something within the horror genre that I was going to do, I think I would probably lean into the television side, just because I think it's, it's interesting to imagine kind of a serialized horror neo-noir thriller in the near future. I think that could be really dope. That's a great answer, man. It's great. So one last one for you. What currently do you have on deck? What's, what's the next thing coming out from you? What are you working on? So I'm uh, working on my next narrative feature, Magnolia Bloom. I have uh, another draft of that that I actually got to give to my producers to get their feedback on. But yeah, that's next up for me, Magnolia Bloom. And then I have a couple other projects that I can't really say anything about yet, but grinding out. And a couple music videos that are going to come out. Uh, and so Magnolia Bloom is my next feature. And we're going to shoot that next year. And then got something else after that that I think will probably be announced soon. Not sure, but got stuff cooking up for sure. Very cool, man. That's so exciting. It's great to see. All right, Philip, man. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it so much. Congratulations on this short. And everybody, you got to go check it out on Hulu. Voodoo, Philip Humans. Dude, thanks again, man. Thank you, brother. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 275. Special thanks to our guest, Philip Humans. Follow him at Philip Humans on Instagram. At time of release, check out his new short, Voodoo, as part of Hulu's Huluween Hub right now. Production tracks provided by Powerman5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, for disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.